This is Paul Nobles from Eat Perform, and I'm with my trusty cohort, Dr. Susan Kleiner, today. We have a really great topic that we're super excited to get into, and hopefully we can pack things into a relatively consumable podcast, but I think this is going to be a topic that people are very interested in. But before we get into that, Susan, can you walk people through how they can, you know, consume your products, talk to you, whatever? Well, it's so much fun to be here again, Paul. Yes, you can find me at my website, drskleiner.com, both me and my books. Um, you can also find me on social media, at Power Eat, uh, on Facebook, Dr. Susan Kleiner. And uh, if you're just looking for my books, you can go to just about any bookstore anywhere. But as I said, super easy to get them right through my website. And I am Paul Nobles. I am the founder of Eden Form. And you can, if you're looking for coaching, you can go to www.eatperform.com. We have basically what amounts to two plans. You know, if you're kind of new to kind of this new, this uh, way of one-on-one -on -one coaching, uh, you can actually choose to get a meal plan specifically written for you by our coaches with foods that you like or dislike, right? And then um, you can also start with a free trial. So if you're, if you're very comfortable with macros, but you want to see what the eat form approach is like, feel free to jump right in with that. Okay, so the topic today is going to be sugar addiction and the one thing that, that I want to kind of get into a little bit is just this idea of, of labeling yourself a, a sugar addict. So when I was talking to Susan before we started the podcast, you know, you really don't see like heroin addicts walking around going, yep, I'm a heroin addict until they're kind of forced to once they go to treatment and things of this nature to kind of kind of deal with that. And we'll start to get into that because not only am I a recovering alcoholic and addict, um, I was a drug treatment person. I was a counselor, right? And so, so I am very familiar with, you know, how people recover and, and I'll get into a little bit of, of some of the thought process there, but, but at no point, you know, would a, would an alcoholic or a heroin addict or drug abuser or something like that go, yep, that's me. You know, I'm just over here um, where I don't have any control over this and, and almost inviting it the way that people invite the label of being a sugar addict or maybe even a food addict to a certain extent. And we'll start going into that a little bit. And so, um, so let's just start there. Do you have any, any thoughts on, on what I'm saying there, Susan? Well, um, it just, it, I just to sort of say my background, um, I have never been in your position, to be honest, I have no personal experience. Um, and, and in fact, none in my family, which is, uh, can lead us into the genetic predisposition conversation as well. Um, at least none that I, that I know of. Um, I have to say that most of my family didn't survive the Holocaust in Europe. So what my real heritage is, I don't know. Uh, but um, 
but I, I do think that your personal experience brings a really important perspective and point of view to working with all clients in general in the area of uh, where, where people may tend to have a lack of control, even, even if it's not an addiction. And uh, you know, in either scenario, um, whether behavioral or uh, biochemical um, and, and where those lines blur, I think your experience is, is uh, an important point of view. So there's kind of two interesting ideas, and I'm going to bring up the idea of eating disorders just because I think it's valuable in this context. And hopefully we can sort of make the shift to like addiction treatments and things of that nature. But when you have an eating disorder, what they don't do is say to you, hey, let's cradle up to this, uh, you know, to the problem, right? They're trying to work through, through some level of psychotherapy, through some level of meal planning, through some level of, of understanding of how your body uses food so that food can then become an ally to you, right? And so what, what doesn't happen is they go, we're gonna cut your food in half, right? Because that would obviously make things worse. When we look at eat to performers as an example, I, I've never really encountered an eat to performer that, that once they get into the program and calories start to normalize and things of this nature, that they struggle with sugar similar to the way that they would have previously. So why does that happen? Well, part of, and, and I, you know, I've said this in various articles, um, part of the reason why is not just sugar, right? A lot of it comes down to energy. And so if you've been dieting or dieting for a long period of time or dieting since you were 15 years old or something of this nature, you know, there's an energy component to this, right? And so you'll see people that if they're under eating and they open up a bag of cashews, you know, within 15 minutes, the bag of cashews, you know, is done, right? But you don't see people walking out there and going, I'm a fat addict, right? When in reality, you know, it's, it's under consumption of energy that is the problem. And so when you have access to energy, it was kind of interesting. I was talking to my cousin who kind of brought up this topic to me. He's like, oh yeah, I'm a total sugar addict. And, and you know, it always strikes me as odd when someone says this because like, you know, as a drug treatment counselor, you know, it's so difficult for, get, for people to make that leap to go, yes, I do have this problem, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, when it comes to sugar addiction, everyone wants to be it, right? Well, yeah. So, it, you know, I mean, the, the acceptability within society certainly plays a role. And the explanation for why you're a quote unquote bad actor in society um, is, is it when it comes, we are in a phase certainly right now where it where anything having to do with food and control and restriction and and um overweight and maybe whoops can I'm you still hear happening no i'm i don't know what what the internet just did but okay we're gonna get rid of that um sorry about that where any of these factors 
there are sort of socially acceptable within the weight loss world, right? Within the diet world, acceptable things to cop to because they are marketing, um, it's marketing language and we can sell you a program if you label yourself this way and we've made it acceptable to do so. Whereas, you know, it's been hundreds of years where substance use addiction has been recognized as, you know, in, in the psychological literature as an abnormal state. And that is considered out of bounds in society. And so, so I think that's the one side of it. The other side that you were talking about um, relative to energy, um, it is so interesting that when you look at the neurochemical or neurobiochemical literature on both substance use uh, addiction, as well as trying to study and understand food addiction versus sugar addiction, all of the chemistry is the same as with um, satiety and um, appetite, um, certainly you know, drive to eat when we're undernourished, um, the, the his, sort of historical evolutionary connection to need to have an appetite when there's food around and, um, and, and stock up so that when we know there's going to be famine and that's why the body gains fat, it's all the same chemistry and biochemistry intertwined in, the, in various um, parts of the brain and, and, and the balance is off or switched in, in addiction or, or even with a behavioral, lack of behavioral control. And so, yes, it, I agree completely with the fact that when we know we are restricting, we are more likely to be driven to eat. Uh, in this environment, we have an overabundance of highly palatable foods, which the body is going to drive us toward because they meet the, they meet the need very quickly. It's a physiological drive that then can be, that we have no turnoff system for in certain people, not in everybody. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, you're not going to crave chicken and kale. You're going to crave, you know, Doritos, right? You're going to crave, and, and a lot of this, you know, I want to get into this and I, I want to be really careful because, you know, when I talk or when I write, I'm not trying to make enemies. I'm trying to make allies. I'm trying to, to bring an informed, you know, that's not how the rest of the internet works. So on the one hand, you have people selling you that you're a victim of sugar, right? Partially because that's what they're selling, right? And we'll go into that in the relationship to low carb and, and things of this nature. And then you have the other people that are making fun of those people, right? And so that's how the internet works. And so we kind of try to be in the middle, but sometimes there are topics like sugar addiction where you almost can't be in the middle. But I'm going to try and stick as much in the middle as possible. And so if you've been eating 1,100 calories, let's say for the last nine months, right? And now, you know, you're faced with a decision at a 
you know, family function, graduation party, something of this nature. Well, you know, you're probably going to overconsume some things that you haven't been. And, and then the way, so would a mouse or a rat. <laughs> yeah, right. If, if we were doing any type of study, you know, it would be logical what would happen in that situation. But the problem that we have as human beings is we have kind of this mental idea of, of what we want to be, who we want to be. We, we've kind of got these outside influences related to social media and things of this nature in terms of what optimal body compensation is, when in fact, you know, that, that actually means a lot of things to a lot of different people differently, right? And so when you are consuming, you know, a natural amount of food, and so let's, let's just say in a, in a phase where you are what we call performance or recomp, and your calories are at 2,400 calories, you're much less likely to overconsume those types of foods. And so as I was talking, I, I kind of mentioned my cousin, I was talking to my cousin and he's like, so, so what about you and M&Ms? Um, and he's, I was like, what do you mean M&Ms? And he's like, well, you know, I can't keep M&Ms in the house um, because if I do, I overconsume them. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Let me see what, what candy I have in my candy drawer. So I named him like the four or five candies that I have. We have like a candy cupboard and we've always, we've always had that, right? And, and as I'm listing off Kit Kats and, and, you know, all these different foods, he's like, oh my goodness, I would destroy all of those foods immediately. I was like, and that's why I don't, right? Because I have it accessible to me at all times. So therefore, um, you know, the issue is, is not that it's not available to me. And then as I sort of went through things with him, and this is the part that I really need people to hear, is that when I eat, I typically eat at right around 8.30 in the morning. My lunch happens around 11.30. I usually have one or two snacks between um, lunch and dinner. It's, 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 kind of my way of doing things. But the reason why I do it that way is because I don't want to get in a situation similar to his, right? So his situation is he goes to work, you know, his first stop is at Dunkin' Donuts, right? And so he's, he's adding Dunkin' Donuts, which, you know, is a hyper palatable food. It's going to go through your system relatively quickly, which by the way, that's the other part. There's this thought process of, of uh, I mean, I remember Gary Tobbs was debating someone on, on the Joe Rogan show, and he was talking about how, how it was so easy to overconsume sugar, and he named donuts, and he named potato chips, and he named all these things that also have fats, also have starches, also have all of these other highly consumable things, like eating just refined sugar by itself is very difficult to do, right? And, and that doesn't really happen, you know, but what does happen is, is if you're trying to sell this idea, you know, then we have to sort of make this other thing the enemy, right? And, and I, I think all of you listening to this should have your antennas up as you're, as you're I would say, being manipulated, right? Because, you know, when we look at 
the the natural thought process, right? So if I can convince you that sugar is bad, then I can also convince you that glucose is bad. And glucose is not bad. Glucose is actually very useful. It's your primary fuel for your brain. It's your primary fuel for your muscles, right? And you can get it from foods from good sources, right? And, and this is the other thing too, is that is that for some people that are low carb, there's like, well, fruit's okay. And then, and then there's all these exceptions. And I remember there was a very popular diet program a few years ago that was sort of related to paleo. And then, and then like, it was almost like they were on the top of the hill, right? And then they would gradually throw out a food that's good. And, and then gradually, full, I mean, I remember being part of a discussion um, in a in a group, or it was just something I stumbled on. I didn't even talk in in the discussion, but it was it was pages long of whether cashews are paleo, right? And and I'm just like, you guys are completely missing the whole point of all of this, right? And if you can sort of distract people right? They'll buy your book, they'll buy your online course, they'll buy all these different things. And by the end of it, you know, sometimes those are really expensive, by the way. I mean, there was, there was one chiropractor, you know, who's kind of putting himself out there as a doctor selling like blood work for $6,000, you know, and, and you don't need blood work to sort of prove whether you're a sugar addict or not, right? I mean, you can fix some of the issue by eating an adequate amount of food right out the gate, right? And so if you, if you focus mostly on nutrient-dense foods, you know, some energy density, right? Like I said, you know, I'll have a serving of candy or I'll have, you know, um, like I, I've been really into like these uh, Greek yogurt, they're Yasso bars. Um, and they're like 100 calories, They've got a lot of really good flavors and stuff like this. I'm not a real fan of like Halo Top and things of this nature, just because I don't like alcohol sugars. Um, I think, well, first of all, I think it, they affect most people negatively, right? But if you eat a pint of Halo, Halo Top, you oh man. You can go to the moon. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you're all, you can go to the moon or you can go to the bathroom a lot, right? Because right? you're going to probably end up going to the bathroom a lot. So can you talk about the relationship? Because, because if, if you can convince someone that sugar is bad, right, then glucose is bad, right? And then you convince them, but your body can make glucose, right? right? And it's like, well, yeah, but it, it, it's not the most efficient way of being. Like if I knew I could just go to a gas, you know, tank and get more of that fuel, you know, I wouldn't need my body to do some difficult things to kind of deal with it. Yeah, it's also just way too simplistic a conversation, really, to say, you know, well, you can just cut out all carbohydrate, which is basically what we're saying. Because if you can't handle sugar and if glucose is the problem, then you can't have carbohydrate. Are you a type one diabetic, is that your problem? Do you truly have carbohydrate metabolism issues? In those settings, we don't treat type one diabetics by removing all carbohydrate. We give them insulin so that they can eat carbohydrate rich foods because they're so important to have in the diet. So let's just start with that 
you know, and, and then I have one other caveat and then I'll get to answer the question. The other, the, the, as you said, when, there, when it's taking pages and pages and pages of basically creative writing to try and explain why a food should be eliminated from the diet, as I said, it, it's now crossed from science to religion. It means that there is no answer. Don't ask this question, just do it because God said so. And, and God is whoever invented whatever diet it is or whatever program it is. If you can't get a straight, simple answer that you can understand, then there is no good answer. And so, so to start with, um, the, you know, just to say, um, glucose is not only important to fuel your brain and your muscles, it is also critically important to help you feel good, to raise your mood. We must have some carbohydrate available to enhance the movement of the important amino acid tryptophan into the brain so that serotonin levels can be at adequate or optimal levels. Some people can get along with and feel okay with pretty low serotonin levels, just like some people can get along with low vitamin D levels or low vitamin C levels. There are always people at a low end of the curve, but most people are going to be in the, in the middle of that bell curve, if not at the top, meaning that most people who go on a very low or any kind of very restricted carbohydrate diet feel like crap. And there is a biochemical reason for that. It's because serotonin levels drop and we know because when we remove number one tryptophan from the diet, people become clinically depressed. When we remove carbohydrate and do studies, we can measure that serotonin levels are lower. And so um, both in the brain as well as in the gut, because you need not highly processed carbohydrates, but our carbohydrate rich foods, including whole grains and high fiber foods, those feed the, the bugs in our gut, our microbiome um, to help our, actually help our body produce serotonin in the gut at much higher levels than in the brain to begin with, and they talk to each other. So just imagine if you have restricted carbohydrate in your diet, and then, and you've gone a long time, and all of a sudden it's presented in front of you, you will not have control. That is a physiological drive to feel better. That's our survival mechanism kicking in. However, the caveat here that should be clear is it's not about carbohydrate rich whole foods. We are talking about hyper palatable, highly processed, highly refined carbohydrate foods, sugars in particular, starches as, as uh, um, we were Paul was talking about and, and including fats, which are a whole different part that also will drive your desire to eat when you are underfueled. So glucose, back to glucose, has so many functions when we raise blood sugar levels it, these are signals, signals at the 
at the genetic um, um, translation level to start a number of different functions in the body. When blood sugar goes up and insulin levels react, that combination is a signal in the body to do a whole host of things, repair, uh, build enzymes, uh, build, build protein tissues, uh, get the immune system going, uh, feeding the immune system. Um, and, and as well, uh, as I said, in, enhance move, moving neurotransmitters around in the body. And so when you eliminate that, you will lose something that the body is going to strive to regain. And so yes, from protein metabolism, we can make glucose, but at very low levels. And the body would rather work in optimal levels, not in minimalist restrictive zones where it knows that survival is at risk. And then the minute you, you talk about low carb at all, you know, then, or, or you talk about carbohydrates as an ally, or like you're saying insulin, so the, the idea that insulin, you know, unless you have kind of a dysfunction, but even, you know, you mentioned diabetes, type two diabetes, you know, can largely be affected with exercise, can largely be affected where you're not eating these large amounts of carbohydrates, but you're eating moderate amount of carbohydrates. But if you're low carb and that's your religion, and that's the thing that, 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 you know, someone has convinced you to believe if you're anything over 30 grams of carbs, you're high carb. And that is just obscene. That is just wrong. Right. And, and the role of insulin, you know, because the thing that you hear that, that is being, told to you so that you are being manipulated is that insulin is a storage hormone and insulin is not a storage hormone. Insulin, like Susan explained, is a building hormone. It's a switch. It's the thing that you use to start a lot of processes that are favorable for your body. Now, you know, what you'll often hear is someone say, you know, I'm, I'm carb intolerant, right? And, you know, what I often will say to someone in the situation is that if you poke yourself with a needle, right, and you're causing yourself pain, you know, you could say to yourself that you're needle intolerant, right? But the reality is, is that, you know, you, you are not doing things the way that they're supposed to be done. Right. So having a moderate amount of carbohydrates doesn't mean that you're carb intolerant. Right. But you kind of being sold this other way of thinking. You know, we always hear this. People say, you know, I was talking to a lady yesterday in our forums and she's like, you know, there's just so many things out there. How do I know which one is right? And so I said, well, first of all, you know, you're talking to me, you're asking me questions and I'm answering those questions. You want to know why those other people don't answer those questions, why they're not super available and things of this nature. It's not because they're busy. It's because those questions are difficult. Right. And it's, it's also, as you were saying before, if the, the common thing that I hear is, you know, I am, I'm definitely food addicted because when I'm not restricting, I'm binging. So 
so so from where I sit, I think, well, then maybe you should stop restricting. Um, and let's let's find a middle ground. It, it could it could it be the fact that you're restricting leads to binging? And that the only solution is not just continue to restrict because you restrict and then you binge. And maybe that's the link. So we have we we have this happen, right? So so what happens is is if you're familiar with each perform, there's a period where you might be cutting. The what I consider the actual piece of eat to perform is what we call performance or recomp, right? Where you're not dieting the good majority of the time. And there's another part where in between two cycles, food also goes up so that your body doesn't adapt so quickly and things of this nature. What some people struggle with was when they first start to move to food as an ally, they experience what, what you're talking about. And the reason why they experience it, in my opinion, is because the good habits that they learn you know, in, in the phases where, where you're trying to mobilize bodily fat don't transfer over to the other, right? Eat to perform is not like this really super restrictive, low as possible, as long as possible, and then just cross your fingers and hope you get there, right? Like the minute you start it, you kind of know how it's gonna work, right? You know that as long as you're patient, you'll eventually sort of figure things out. We were actually talking a little bit about kind of wish weights and things of this nature, and really kind of, you know, a lot of the thoughts people have related to weight and, and height, you know, they don't always end up being true because when you start to eat an adequate amount for what you do, you start to put on muscle, you know, and then you, you just look differently. And maybe your wish weight was 120, but at 140, you're actually quite lean, very capable and can eat a good amount of food. Yeah, many so, of the, you know, as I would say, many of the bikini competitors that I work with, nobody, no average person would be able to guess their body weight because, yeah. you know, they look like they weigh 110, but as you said, they weigh 135. Yeah. And, and so, you know, and, and you see that actually in the fitness and bikini world where, um, there's kind of the people that don't work with people that have knowledge of how it all works. And then when they show it up at a competition, they kind of look almost washed out. Right. right. Whereas the people that work with someone that actually knows what they're doing and is actually um, eating an adequate amount of food most of the time, they're actually able to build muscle right in the phases. Like I'm talking about with performance and recomp where, you know, they're not dieting the good majority of the time right? Anybody that's actually doing it, there's a lot of people that start bikini and fitness, right? And then they, they just can't make it after the first cycle, right? And often go back to bad, bad behavior, or they, or they, they, they get like that one time where they had like super optimal body composition, and it sort of messes them up for kind of the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. The long time people, the people that are doing it 10 to 15 years, they also can struggle with that a little bit, but they tend to have a much whole, much more holistic approach. They're building muscle the good majority of the time when they're cutting, the cutting cycles are very short, right? And so, um, 
you know, this is all, you know, we're kind of getting away from a little bit of the concept of, of what we were talking about with sugar addiction, right? But uh, I just wanted to kind of make that point. The last thing I'm going to point, point out actually does relate a little bit to bodybuilding. Um, and, you know, at one point we had Lane Norton on the, the podcast and he brought up a great point and it, he was talking about creatine, but it could apply to carbohydrates also, right? And um, I said, you know, what do you say to someone that says creatine makes me bloated? And he said, well, if it doesn't make you bloated, it's not working, right? And when you look at carbohydrates, I think people kind of focus on, because, you know, let's be real, you know, uh, fats don't require the amount of water to process in your body that carbohydrates do. But that carbohydrate is going to be more restorative. It's going to help you with recovery. It's going to allow you to build uh, muscle. And so, so being a little bloated and a little uncomfortable, I mean, especially if you've come from super low carb for, for five to seven years, and now you're moving to this because it's basically gotten you nowhere, you know, then you have to expect that there's going to be a little bit of an adjustment, right? If you've been poking yourself in the skin for five to seven years, and then you stop, there's going to be like a part of you that's like, well, this is great, you know, that I don't have this dull pain all the time. But your body did kind of get used to that dull pain. So it might take a bit for you to sort of figure things out. And you might actually be a little bit bloated, right? But that bloating oftentimes, especially if, if, if you have carbohydrates in the evening and then you go to bed, oftentimes people wake up a lot leaner as a result of that, right? So they focus on the hour or hour and a half where they were bloated and then don't focus on the end result where they wake up and look in the mirror and, and, and body composition is better. Also, um, just especially for those people who have either been low carb or low fiber, um, two, two things. One is, yes, when you start to add fiber, this is like nutrition 101, guys, I have to tell you, this is what I learned 40 years ago. <laughs> you add fiber to your diet slowly. Don't all of a sudden go from zero to 100, or you will feel like you're going to explode. Um, your, your intestines will become very bloated, very uncomfortable, um, lots of gas, possibly diarrhea, all kinds of things, because you're just feeding that population of, of healthy culture in your gut and they are having a party in there. And so fiber is their food, we call it a prebiotic. And so when you return to eating whole carbohydrate foods that contain fiber, you must do it slowly. This also happens to people who decide to eat a whole plant-based diet with all their proteins coming in from carbs as, as well, or plant foods, excuse me. Every plant protein food contains fiber unless it's processed like tofu versus soybeans or edamame. So you are adding a lot of fiber and you will start to get very bloated and terribly uncomfortable. And typically people will just stop and say, I can't, I'm not made to do this. No, this happens to everybody. The recommendation is add it 
very slowly, give yourself weeks, if not months, to slowly increase your fiber intake, number one. Number two is that yes, when we increase carbohydrate content, um, we are bringing in, and we've talked about this before, three molecules of water for every molecule of glucose that enters your cells. So that goes into the muscle cell. So you do way more because water has weight, but those muscle cells are now fully hydrated. And it's only in a fully hydrated cell where you will get um, optimal protein synthesis. So muscle protein synthesis requires a well hydrated environment. And so you get way better results on protein and muscle building, repair and recovery when you are well hydrated. So the scale will say more, you'll start to see an amazing pump um, from your muscles that you probably weren't seeing. You will be more cut as Paul is talking about than you will be um, without any carbs at all. But your body does have, you, you, you will sense that this sort of weight is and fluid is there, even though it's not extracellular, it's now where it needs to be intracellular inside the cells. Because you're dehydrated, right? right. I mean, right. De dehydrated is a, a piece of it. Okay, so- is by nature dehydrating, yes. Yeah, and so, um, okay, so I think we covered it. I think we actually more than covered it. And so um, I appreciate everybody listening to this. Hopefully it helps kind of clear some things up and uh, we will talk to you later. Bye now.